Good morning, Sanctuary. Good morning, family. Good to be with you. Uh, it was such a joy to see you last Sunday, or to see so many of you at least. We had an amazing Easter. We had five in-person services, two online services. Uh, we had one in-person service looking out over the city early in the morning at Prospect Park. Another, uh, I got to dart to in between two of our gatherings here at 15 Hay Street, got to dart over to a park on the north end to see Sanctuary North. And then there were three gatherings right here in the heart of the city. I wanted to let you know in regards to the services at 15 Hay Street, we got great feedback on the safety cleanliness um, of just all the systems. And I say that all in that we are hoping to see more and more of you here uh, for in, in the weeks to come. Uh, some other news. We had over 15 people um, respond, like put their hand up in the air or like click the little hand button online uh, and respond to, uh, to the invitation to say yes to Jesus, to recommit their life, uh, to respond in some way uh, to the journey uh, and to the path of following Jesus. Um, and that is just a, just a massive part of why we are here and why we exist. Um, a couple of the things we wanted to let you know that Church Online will continue to meet at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. lining up with our morning in-person gatherings. And then we'll continue to do communion there to provide meaningful space online that pe so people can connect there, especially those that just yeah don't feel ready or comfortable to move back in person. And then we're going to slowly be moving toward live stream, which you saw a little glimpse of uh, on Easter Sunday. And then as we head into the summer, we're really hoping and believing that there's going to be um, I mentioned this a little bit on Vision Sunday. There's going to be a really kind of beautiful collision or marriage between some of the online pieces uh, and then seeing sort of more um, movement around our home churches and gathering in other parts of Rhode Island and seeing more expressions of sanctuary pop up. And so we'll be sharing more about that as the summer gets closer. Uh, today we are... This is like the second Sunday of a season you may be unfamiliar with of called Eastertide. So Easter in the Christian calendar is not just really limited to one day uh, in the course of a year. It is a six-week period where we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the inbreaking of the kingdom. We remember in all sorts of different ways that we do not have to fear death any longer. Uh, we have this little hashtag or a little... Um, like slogan that has popped up in our church for years now during Eastertide, which is simply raise life. Like what does it mean to raise life in a culture of death? Or this year zeroing in on that quote that I mentioned in our Easter service last week, what does it mean to be Easter people in a good Friday world? And so we're gonna look at a few of the accounts of the early church and ask, okay, what does it look like for us to be marked by the resurrection? Us as in sanctuary church here and now, not some broad theological vision, but a specific vision for what it looks like for us to lean in um, to our, our identity as the church, as a community, and as a family, and as a home marked out by Jesus. So today, I want to invite you, we're going to turn to Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think it would be such a funny thing for, uh, for any of you to see my... Um, 
or just see a pastor's inbox. It is um, quite the adventure. Um, it is a lot of emails that look like, hey, can you tell me your position on insert hot button social issue? Um, a lot of times it's like, can I tell you my story? Most often it's something related to, I have been so hurt by the church. Uh, I came to your gathering. I sort of liked it, but I'm terrified of getting connected. I've been hurt by leadership and now uh, I become like the stand in for like uh, representing this institution that has like hurt them or they've been just uh, frustrated by or they don't know what to make of or wondering if they're safe in that space. It's like, here's how I've been hurt. Um, and, and you realize that like I'm being asked to speak in that moment uh, to all of their ideas and all of their ideals and all of their assumptions about church. And it highlights something for me that I don't think many of us are like quite sure um, what, what to make of, which is simply that we're, we actually don't know what the church is supposed to be like. I, I think that people um, don't actually know what to expect too often from church. Like, we have ideas on what community and what family should look like, and then these words get thrown around. If you walk up the steps uh, in person here at 15 Hay Street, you'll see a little welcome home banner. Uh, what does that mean, and what should my expectations be like that, especially when everyone has different expectations of what a home is supposed to look like? So this passage is actually, one scholar says, one of the best descriptions of the church in all of recorded history, in all of the scriptures. So if you're new, I think this is going to be um, really great. You're going to get an Im a vision of what the ideal is in so many ways. And if you're not new, I mean, I just hope this gives us a robust theological resurrection vision of who we're to be, of what it means to be Easter people in a good Friday world. And so out of the gate here, first Sunday of, or second Sunday of Eastertide, I want to just name that Jesus desires a united church. Jesus desires a united church. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, he says, to live a life worthy, Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So first off, there's this shared calling. What does true unity and connectedness look like? Well, it, it, it looks like... Um, us being united in the upward call of being apprentices of Jesus. He wants us to see that we all have the same call, to seek first the kingdom of God, to walk in his ways, to be his disciple, to follow him. God calls us all to be the same thing. And some people really struggle with this. It's like Paul telling this church in Ephesus, by the way, just the background to this church, like this church um, he came it, as he planted this. This is probably three, four years before. He's writing this now in prison uh, to help kind of help root and establish them uh, and all that he's taught them. But I mean, he launched this discipleship movement in this city that was um, just deeply, deeply unchristian, unJewish, introducing this very subversive way of being in the world. And so as Paul's like helping them make sense and codify a vision for what it looks like to be this new humanity is this language that he uses. Um, he is crying, he is, he's helping all of these 
um, brand new followers of Jesus see um, that there is no junior call. He doesn't want people walking around thinking that they have some sort of lesser call than he does, than anyone else in the community does. Live lives worthy of that calling. So that idea of worthy is this word axios, which is where we get the word axis. It's like a balancing point on a scale. He's saying here um, that like based on everything that you've learned from me, specifically if we were to take time and go back and read the first three chapters of Ephesians, that like based on everything that you've learned, like uh, in chapter one, it's like praise be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chosen by the Father. He talks about being redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit, given this special rev- revelation so that these people can know him and like walk with him and hear his voice, move from death to life. This brand new humanity having their heart strengthened in light of all of that three chapters of this is who God is, thus this is who you are. He says, put that on the scale and then figure out how you are going to live the way of Jesus. So you're not going to live your life just based on thoughts about God or junk theology on Instagram or some like vapid devotional. You're going to build it on the scriptures, build it on his letters and build it on this shared experience of walking faithfully with Jesus. You're living the Christian life based on chapters of New Testament revelation about who you are and what God's called you to and thus like what is possible. And so you're supposed to take that. This is the language he's using here. Take that and measure it. Live a life worthy of that. You put all that on the scale and then figure out, all right, how do I flesh this out? Your response is supposed to be a response worthy of a calling that you've received. Uh, Paul Tripp writes, your life is so much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And you get to be a part of it. Do you have that sense of call. Just think about your current response to the revelation that you've received. If you're here and a follower of Jesus, are you living out of that amazing grace? Are you living out of that testimony? So the first part of having a united church is seeing our shared calling. The second part is understanding how we then act inside that community. Verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As we were uh, setting up today, um, uh, Adam, who you all know well, or many of you know well, as I was reading the passage out out loud, he just said, oh, please, no, not this passage. Like, please, no, not this passage right now. 
which I get. And if <laughs> I feel like what I know Adam's going through, what I'm going through, what many of us are going through is a microcosm of what we're all going through right now in American life. It feels like nothing can really bring us back together. This is, it feels cliche almost at this point to just even say it out loud or just, not cliche, it feels tired. It's just everything is so polarized. Uh, our, the way we want to differentiate, right? Naturally, as humans, we want to differentiate from one another, but it's getting more and more extreme. It's being weaponized. So when we gather, even as like family around the table with friends, we don't want to talk about anything meaningful because everything is so controversial. Everything feels loaded. And to hold a contrary view to whatever is the dominant opinion in whatever context you're in is to like functionally be the worst person alive sometimes. Like we, we live in a city where it's just so hard to be united. Just the idea actually in some circles of talking about unity and talking about a sort of humility, theological humility, will make you actually sound like a centrist, which used to be a good word, but which is quickly becoming an evil word. Like your convictions aren't sharp enough. Like you're too understanding of the other side. This has become in some places even a great evil. Our church is literally, uh, we talk about every time we do a grow track or an intro to church or I explain what we're about, we talk about being a center set community. We declare Jesus is Lord, the gospel, and recognize that people stumble into the kingdom from all different vantage points with all different visions of what it means to be human and alive and who God is. And we invite people to journey toward that center, not creating a bounded set that you have to believe this about this issue and this about this issue before you actually can meaningfully step into the life of the community. Center set. We value, our, our, our values, our journey values mapped onto the life of Jesus, right? To be an apprentice of Jesus is to journey, to walk the path of Jesus in four directions, upward, inward, outward, withward. Our values, our journey. This sort of um, idea like isn't uh, centrist in a negative sense. It's meant to be humble. This is what we aspire to be as a community, as a humble place where there is actual difference and we can help move people along into greater faithfulness. This is becoming deeply out of vogue. And on top of all that, friendship is just, <laughs> is just hard. Friendship is hard, especially in a place like like Providence or a place like Newport, like people are always leaving, changing jobs, changing neighborhoods, even changing churches. Feels like how are we going to unite? It's tough to build a New Testament community on the snippets of sporadic time that we seem to have with each other. So, so then Paul gives us some examples. Be completely humble. Now, actually, in the Greek, this is a compound word that literally means to think or judge with lowliness. Say the word lowliness. S scholars say that this, um, this idea really did not exist in Greek and Roman culture. The Greeks despised humility. The modern day equivalent would be like to say, um, I don't know, if I got up and preached a sermon on why it would be really good to have low self-esteem. 
Like everybody should have low self-esteem. Like that would be offensive in our culture. And that would, that was what it was like to talk about humility in the way that Paul's talking about that in this context. So because this idea was so looked down upon in the time of this writing, they had to invent a word to describe the kind of humility that we are supposed to show toward one another. Matthew 11, right, where he's modeling this off Jesus. Take my yoke, my teaching upon you, Jesus says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Paul is accessing this. But the Greeks, they thought it was unnatural, unnatural to possess an instinct where they would voluntarily humble themselves before others. At the core of this word is this mindset that says, what a privilege it is to be in a room full of people greater than me. How many of you are like, you walked in on Easter Sunday? You like sat down and you're like, I can't believe I get to be in this group. There's, there's like, there's Judy. She's in middle management. Like, that's amazing. Like, there's so-and-so in recovery. Like, I get to be in this room. I don't know if you've ever been in a room. Uh, I've had the pleasure of being in some rooms where um, there really was like a really special person in the room. There was the guest of honor. There was like the, the, the celebrity figure. Uh, and then awkwardly being in a room where people don't realize that they aren't at the center. Have you ever been in a room like that? Where someone's like, you, you are positing yourself like you are a big deal and you are not the big deal here. It's like have the mindset that everyone is your superior. How would that change your understanding of how to act like in, in, in a room? Like we walk into a place and you're just like, what a privilege. We love to talk about honor here at Sanctuary Church, like blessing. That for all the ways like sarcasm and a little like cynicism can be fun and kind of embeds itself in so much of New England culture. Like we are really trying to push back against that on the regular. Because when we walk in, our first move is not to cut people down. It's to go, ah, oh, what a privilege. Like in your heart to revere other people in that way. This is hard. Bernice King said, a nation will never eradicate what it worships. A nation will never eradicate what it worships. And we worship self above all else. In a place like this, in a family like this, in light of who we as a church pledge our allegiance to, we are called to walk the path of complete humility, whether it's in vogue or out of it. Second uh, little framework here is to be gentle be gentle. Now this has the idea, I love this. This, are you with me? I don't know how I would tell. To be gentle. To be gentle um, is to have the idea of a wild animal that has been tamed. A wild animal that's been tamed. Um, it's like all its strength has been brought under control, but for a particular purpose. For a particular purpose. It's hard to be gentle when we are so opinionated about politics and theories that we know a little bit about, or the best is about subjects that we only recently watched on a documentary. Like uh, suddenly we are just in. It's amazing how violently we want to share our two cents. Rarely do you hear things like, I really appreciate your opinion on that. I'm gonna take some time to think on that and respond cautiously and thoughtfully next time we interact. Like even saying that, like, like sounds funny. 
Like everyone is so violent. It's not that followers of Jesus, by the way, aren't passionate. We are. But we're called to rein it in in the family of God. Uh, Ronald Roheiser. He says, there is a cruel, this is a cruel thing to say. This is a cruel thing to say. But all this angry zeal and passion, no matter how high the cause which fuels it, is not a sign that truth and the gospel are breaking through. When truth and the gospel break through, the first mark is compassion, not anger. Next word. Paul gives us is patience. This literally means long-suffering toward aggravating people. <laughs> long-suffering toward aggravating people. Do you want to know the biggest problem I have with being a pastor? It's that people are annoying. Like so annoying. Being a pastor is so much about just dealing with really annoying people. And you know the problem being in a church it's that pastors are annoying. Like pastoral staff, the staff of the church were annoying. People by nature are aggravating, filled with all sorts of idiosyncrasies. And like just, I don't want to hear your theory on X, Y, and Z. And I can't believe you have this idea. Uh, in this moment, I so want to take a swipe at like the insanity of like pet culture, but I'm pretty sure that that's like more volatile than politics at this moment. So I'll just leave that alone. But like people, it's just, there's so much, like so many idiosyncrasies that it's just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. You don't get it. We don't get it. Like this is just, people are hard. People are hard. And as a result, we tend to just dismiss people and categorize them and move on. But we're called to be patient with people. Jesus has this moment uh, where he says, if someone sins against you, like if someone sins, or he's asked this question, if someone sins against me, am I allowed to change groups? <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to change home churches? Like if someone were to do something, and he's like, no, Jesus says, no, stay, stay in the same home church, stay in the community, stay in the family and forgive them more than once. How many times? Jesus says 70 times 70. Keep forgiving them. Stay. Look, there is no other community in the world that offers that kind of patience. This is our call. We are commanded to do this. And if we don't get that right, what is our message to other people? We have to be the ones to model the solution to the world. Tillich uh, says the kingdom of God will always remain transcendent. He's, by that he just means the, the, the church, the way of Jesus will always remain transcendent. But it appears as a judgment on a given form of society and as a norm for a coming one. In other words, there's always going to be places where the way of Jesus may feel like it aligns with whatever is uh, happening in culture. And there's always going to be places where it pushes back. It's because embodiment is the best form of critique. Embodiment is far better than just going and railing against X, Y, or Z, against the virtue signaling that happens every day on social media. I have found so often the people that post the less often 
are the people that are actually doing the most work. This is an invitation to start an outpost. <laughs> Suffering love. Suffering love is a distinct mark of the way of Jesus. Bearing with one another in love is this invitation that is given to the church. All right, the often repeated part of Jesus' prayer for the church he gives in John 17 is the way the world will know who I am, how good I am, will know about the way of life, the way of heaven, about God, the way people will give God glory is the church will be one as God is one. You are invited to put up with other people because of your love, because how you have been loved. 1 Peter 4 eight says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 right, says, hatred stirs up conflict. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Jesus-centered love throws a blanket over the sins of others. So we aren't stuck always looking at it. We must... We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility, Klein Snodgrass says. We must renounce harshness in order to walk with gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. We've got to renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, like Paul writes. The church is unified and God's glorified when we live with that sort of Christ-like conduct. Now, why does Paul say that this is how we should live? I hope this is obvious to the followers of Jesus who are watching right now. It, 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 it's because this is how Jesus has treated us. How did Jesus treat his annoying crew? You've got Thomas, who we talked a lot about last week. He's like the Debbie Downer, like, oh, I'm probably going to die anyway. Like, you've got the sons of thunder who are just like extra all the time. You got Peter like denying and forgetting and just like so passionate in both directions. And then we've got this whole other group of disciples that we don't even know about, assumedly because they were just so annoying. They weren't even worth like talking about. <laughs> Jesus has this forbearing love that covered a multitude of sins. Our model is how Christ loved us. I know, like just what an out there thought. But this is how we are called to pattern our lives. John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. This isn't do unto others, it's better than that. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another another. You cannot have an authentic, united community on your own terms. Love by its very nature is inconvenient and it is costly. 
So what sort of church does Jesus have in mind? It's a united church. Are we united? Are we united? Let's resolve in our hearts to be a church like this. To be a church bound together with the bonds of family. If you want to get to know more about our church, um, this Wednesday we're going to be doing another intro to church on Zoom Wednesday night at at, uh, 8 o'clock from 8 to 8.30, 30 minutes. Come learn a bit about our community, our pathway, how you can get connected. Um, Join GrowTrack when that comes back around in a week. Learn about your gifts and, and connect the dots with your story. Get a profile of what it might look like for you to journey in this family. But let's resolve in our hearts to be a unified church. Those of us who um, need to heed Paul's concerns uh, when he's setting up uh, the church in Corinth to come to the communion table. And he says, if you've got any issues with a brother or sister, go resolve those and take care of those before coming to take communion. If today's your day to do that, go and do that. All the passages, you may not be familiar with this, but one of the more repeated commands is something we don't actually do very often anymore, which is greet one another with a holy kiss. So to greet one another with a holy kiss, I mean, this was like to literally like plant on the lips of someone else, often before you're taking communion, like kissing one another. You you can't really do that very well if you've got an issue with somebody else. They would actually call this in the early church the Judas kiss. It was like a kiss of betrayal if in your heart there's unresolved whatever. There may be an invitation here to begin the process of reconciliation, of healing and love. Let's resolve in our hearts to be a church like this. Look, the deepest relationships in life are monogamous ones. Brian Loritz recently said, the beauty of marriage is the discovery that your way is not the way of doing things, not the only way of doing things. So we don't leave, but we hang in there and we grow. And then he says, what if we brought this mindset and depth of commitment to the church, especially the multi-ethnic church, right? Providence needs a united church on all fronts. I believe this is why God has actually been calling us, uh, if you haven't heard this, has been calling us as a larger family to unite together more regularly around worship. In a week, we're gonna be having a heart night here. Heart is like a space where we come together and we, we worship. In the heart of the city, for the heart of the Lord, we come together and we sing. All of our congregations come together. And doing these more frequently is going to be so important as that binds us together in unity. Will our church be a thing of beauty in these divided times? A number of years ago, there was a older, 60-something-year-old or so, black woman, sitting like second to last pew, and she would always have a little Trump pin. And in this pew right here was a 22-year-old young woman who was transitioning to be a man, a transgendered man, who was incredibly active um, in, in, uh, in sort of the, the, the justice community, social justice community here in the city. And in the wake of going through this transition and the depression that was happening in his life, you had this woman who couldn't have been more 
diametrically opposed on so many levels, racially, politically, age, culture, take him in to their home and care for them. I have a friend this summer um, who, after um, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd's deaths, were really wrestling with the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter and trying to understand um, systemic racism in a meaningful way for the first time. And this couple who were white went to a home church leader that they were a part of who was black and began just to ask questions about race and about uh, if they had blind spots and what it meant to be an ally and what it meant um, to be a follower of Jesus in this moment as they were getting very mixed signals on how best to engage this very complicated moment. A number of years ago, there were friends of mine um, who, um, one of the, uh, this married couple and um, one person in the marriage um, had, an, had an affair, had a, 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 a moment of, of infidelity. And there's another couple in the church who had actually been through something really, really uh, similar years before. And watching these two connect and be able to, I'm seeing that older couple help heal and talk about grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and love and to care for them. I hadn't seen anything like it. And then recently there was a leader in our church who was going through something just incredibly painful. And um, a friend came to him and said, um, hey, my dad has been through what you're going through. Could I connect you guys? Could I connect you guys? And, and, and allowing that person to begin to walk this leader through an incredibly challenging moment. When we talk of unity in a divided world and we talk about a distinctly Christian vision of unity, a Jesus-centered vision of unity, we are talking about something potent and powerful. We are talking about something um, that brings the sort of healing and wholeness that we believe the world is desperately, desperately wanting to see more of. At Sanctuary, we say it like this. We are called to journey together as one body. We value the image of God in all people, everywhere. We believe that we were created to live deeply with one another, carrying each other's burdens, sharing our possessions, to pray for and confess our sins to each other, to suffer and celebrate together. It's in these honest, loving relationships that God transforms us. The way 
of Jesus cannot be lived alone. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, as we come to the bread and the cup, uh, we know, Lord, just historically, this has been the place of profound unity of alignment where our shared call where our shared commitment to each other is met with your commitment to us, where we get to witness and literally ingest the love and grace forgiveness that has been poured out on us. And so I pray, Lord, in a moment like this, I pray right now that there is just like conviction on on. on those of us that struggle with gossip. I pray there is conviction to remove ourselves from the toxic environments of social media that we find ourselves in. I pray that there is just a, a renewed commitment to honor and bless those around us. I pray, Lord, that there is a deep humbling that would happen in my heart and in the heart of our teams and leaders and the heart of our whole church, that we would be a community that is marked by your grace. So we come to the table ready to take, Lord, the wine of forgiveness and the bread of relief. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.